You're listening to audio from Cities Church. You can find more resources and learn about our ministry by visiting citieschurch.com. So one of the things that you'll notice in this section of Psalms is that they're all framed in a similar way. These are all Psalms of David, and most of them are linked to specific moments in David's life. We've seen that going back to Psalm 51. It will continue through Psalm 72, which means for all these Psalms, the the same basic outline keeps getting repeated, and the outline looks like this. First, David faces adversity. And then second, David models for us how to trust God in the midst of that adversity. We're going to see this outline repeated over and over again. And of course, the details are all different. Each psalm brings its own unique value. But this broader theme is going to stay the same here for a while. The theme is that we must learn how to trust God in the midst of challenging situations. And just in case when I say that, it feels like, man, that's going to get redundant. Same thing over and over again. I just want to remind you that that's also the same repeated basic message of the entire Bible. Martin Luther once said that the whole scripture principally aims at this thing, that we should not doubt, but that we should hope. That we should trust that God is a merciful, bountiful, gracious, and patient God to his people. Another way that we could say that is that the whole Bible has this as its main goal. That we should not fear, but that we should have faith. Don't fear, have faith. Don't fear anything that is not God. Have faith only in God because of Jesus Christ. Like, that's it right there, okay? Like, if you've ever wondered in reading the Bible, if you've ever wondered what is God saying to me in his word, he is never saying less than that. Like, if if you could take this book and eat this book and swallow this book and get this book to go down deep inside of your soul and then really live out this book, the main application that would characterize your life is Christ-centered faith in the place of soul-crushing fear. Like, that's it. Okay, and I'm saying this broadly, okay, I'm saying this in in big, bold letters, don't fear, have faith. But what I'd like to do for this sermon is I want to bring this down to the level of our daily experience and the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. What I'd like to do today is is I want to talk about something we've not talked about in detail before, and that is the topic of the assurance of salvation. So here's the plan. Here's an outline. We're going to do three things this morning. First, I want us to recognize assurance in David's example here in Psalm 56. Second, I want us just to understand the meaning of assurance, including what it is and what it's not. And then thirdly, we're going to end by, I want to suggest one means through which we might experience more assurance in our lives. Those are the three steps for this sermon. Let's pray again and we'll dig in. Father in heaven, for this moment, we thank you. Thank you for bringing us here with your word open before us. 
we recognize now, we confess that we need your Holy Spirit and we need his power to receive what you have for us in your word. So pour out your spirit, we ask, and glorify your name here. In Jesus' name, amen. So the first thing I want us to do here in Psalm 56 is to recognize assurance in David's example. Now, like in the other Psalms of this section, David is facing hardship. The, the superscript right above verse 1 says that, that David wrote this when the Philistines seized him in Gath. And we read about that in 1 Samuel 21, which was actually the start of when David was on the run from King Saul. And there's a lot of ironies in this story, okay? So going back to, to 1 Samuel 21 for just a minute, earlier in chapter 21 of 1 Samuel, when David was first fleeing from Saul, he came to the town of Nob, and, and Nob was a little town in Israel where all the priests lived, and when David got there on the run, he was hungry enough to eat the holy bread, and he was desperate enough to ask the high priest for weapons, because he, he literally was on the run. He literally was, imagine, he's out of breath, he gets there, he has nothing with him, so he asked the high priest for some weapons, and the high priest Ahimelech told David that the only the only weapon he had, the only sword he had to give David was the sword of Goliath the Philistine. And so for reading this, we got to say, wait a second, <laughs> why, why does the high priest here, why do these priests have the sword of Goliath? And the reason why is because David had killed Goliath on behalf of Israel in 1 Samuel 17, just a few chapters before. And David's victory over Goliath for Israel was so epic that they took Goliath's sword and made it a museum piece in Israel. But see, now David, he has to take that same sword to defend himself because Saul and the army of Israel are trying to kill him. Just a few chapters here. And right after this, we're going to see at the end of 1 Samuel 21, verse 10, that David flees from Nob to the land of Gath. And Gath was a Philistine town. And what's important about this town of Gath is that it was actually the hometown of Goliath. Back in chapter 17... We read about the battle between David and Goliath. When Goliath is first introduced, this is what the text says. There came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath. And so we need to get what's going on here in 1 Samuel 21. David, on the run from Saul and Israel, finds himself holding Goliath's sword, standing in Goliath's hometown, now with his own people against him, coming after him, trying to kill him. Can you imagine how retrograde this must have felt for David? Like things had gone backwards for him. Because he had already been anointed king over Israel. He had defeated Goliath on behalf of Israel. But now at this point, although things were on the up and up for David, he finds himself here being pursued, being hunted down by the very people he had just saved. 
And so we get it, right? When David describes his situation in Psalm 56 as, as if the stress is suffocating him. Like he, he talks, he can't escape it. He, he can't get away from it. We hear that in the phrase all day long. You can see that there. Look in verse 1, verse 2, verse 5. David repeats this phrase all day long. And we should hear David using this phrase in the same way we use that phrase. It's a complaint, right? Think about this. You, imagine here, think with me about how, how we tend to use the phrase. We, we don't say, okay, we don't say all day long the kids have been so obedient. <laughs> or we don't, we don't say all day long my boss has been such an awesome person. We don't talk that way, right? That's not the way that we use the phrase. We usually, we mean something negative when we say all day long. And I think this is fascinating. It's fascinating that even we as 21st century English speakers, we use this phrase in the same way David does. We use this phrase to communicate weariness. That's what David's doing here. Here, David, he's saying all day long. An attacker oppresses me all day long. My enemies trample on me all day long. They injure my cause. You hear that? His enemies are out to get him and they will not stop. And so David in Psalm 56, he's just sick and tired, man. He's sick and tired of it. But also here in Psalm 56, we see that David remembers God's care for him. See, David knows that God knows he is sick and tired. This is verse 8. David says that God has kept up with his tossings. Imagine sleepless nights. God has collected his tears in a bottle. So God is not distantly familiar with David's situation, but he knows everything about David's situation. He even knows more than David knows himself. And David, therefore, in verse 9, trusts that God will stop his enemies. And David worships God in verse 12 because he knows that the worst of all his enemies' death has been defeated. That's verse 13. And that's Psalm 56. That's Psalm 56 in a nutshell. There are two basic parts. There's David's hardship, verses 1 to 7. And there's God's care for David in verses 8 to 13. But the main theme, the main thing we see in Psalm 56 is David's assurance. This shows up twice. The, in, in the first part and the second part of that two-part outline. We see it in the refrain here in verses, look at verses 3 and 4. <clears throat> and then in verses 9 to 11. Now, I want, you to, I want you to see this. So look down on your Bibles. Look at verse 3. David says, when I am afraid, I put my trust in you. In God whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? That's faith, right? David's faith is easy to see here. Speaking of don't fear, have faith. 
That's literally what this is. Literally, David says, God, I trust you. I shall not be afraid. And again, the, the main goal of the entire Bible is that you would say that. But, but then notice that David also, he, he repeats this refrain, refrain again in verses 9 to 11. And I think in these verses, in 9 to 11, he repeats this refrain, but he amplifies it a little bit. It's the same sort of thing he's saying in these verses, but it's almost like he takes it and goes like that. See? Look at verse 9, the end of verse 9. <laughs> this I know that God is for me. In God whose word I praise, in Yahweh whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? This is faith, right? We see this is David's faith, and we've seen David's faith before, but if we slow down here, I think that we begin to see that this is faith of a different quality. David is saying that God is for him, for him. And it's not just that God is for him, he's saying that he knows that God is for him. This same idea shows up in Psalm 118, verse 6, when the psalmist says, Yahweh is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Do, you, do we appreciate what's being said there? Look, look. God, <laughs> the psalmist is saying, God is on my side. God's on my side. God is for me. See, that would be the most exaggerated, arrogant thing any human being could ever say if it wasn't true, but it is true. And David is absolutely sure that it's true. And that's why we, we, we see his faith here, but we see that it's a faith of a higher degree. It's, it's of a, a different quality. It's a different quality of faith that we don't always see in the Bible or always experience ourselves. And so what I want to do, I just want us to recognize that for right now, okay? Just recognize this is a different quality of faith. You guys tracking with that? This is different, man. This is different, what he's saying here. David's example of faith in Psalm 56 is robust, to say the least. This is a strong, stubborn, anthem-heralding kind of faith. This is not mustard seed faith, okay? And mustard seeds are great, okay? I want you, we love mustard seeds. Thank God for mustard seeds, okay? But this is not that. This is not a bruised reed or a smoking flax kind of faith. And again, we love bruised reeds and smoking flax. Jesus, Jesus loves them too. Nothing wrong with that, but that's not what this is. David's example of faith in Psalm 56 is a blazing fire kind of faith. 
It's what's been called the assurance of faith or the assurance of salvation. And so what I want to do now is just explain more of what that is. The first thing we have to do is, is to see it, pick it up here, track with it, see it in Psalm 56, recognize assurance in David's example. But now we're going to focus in on, on the second thing here. I want us to understand the meaning of assurance. What is the assurance of salvation? And, and maybe you've read or thought about this topic of assurance before, or maybe you haven't. Either way, I think there's a good chance that we all think about assurance more than we realize. And that's especially the case in how we pray for other Christians. Okay, track with me here. I, this, I realized this a couple years ago. Um, I realized that, that when I, I pray for other people, when I pray for my family and my friends, when I pray for our church, the most repeated thing that I would pray is that we'd all be assured of God's love for us. Now, I, I found myself praying over and over again. Now, I, I, would, I would still pray for specific things, right? Like you do. I would pray for others, things like physical healing and a good job interview and financial provision and relational reconciliation. I would pray for all this type of real life stuff, right? But I found, my, I found myself that after I would pray for all these things, I would, I would conclude each petition for all these practical things, I will conclude each petition with something like, and more than anything, God, make this person know that you love them and that you're with them, that you're for them. I would, I would pray that way. If we think about it, I think this is how we tend to pray for other Christians. We, we, tend, I just, we just had our prayer gathering this morning um, at nine and we prayed this way. I think we tend to pray for Christians this way all the time. It's like, for example, when we pray the phrase, God be with so-and-so. I pray that all the time. I've, I've recognized that I, all the time, I find myself praying, God, be with so-and-so. But here's the thing. Um, God, of course, is going to be with Christians, right? His Holy Spirit fills Christians, indwells Christians. Jesus has promised Christians that he will never leave them. So what we're really asking, what I'm asking when I pray that God be with someone is not simply that God be with them, but we're asking, I'm asking that the person know that God is with them, right? So we're not praying for Christians to become Christians. We're praying that Christians know what it means to be a Christian. We pray this way all the time. It's assurance that we're praying for. We're praying for one another that we would have assurance because here's the thing. If you have assurance, everything else in life gets put in perspective. Okay, so I'm just gonna press, I'm gonna press this in a little bit more, okay? Hang with me. Think about how we greet one another. Like when we greet one another, see people, you know, we greet, it's very common to say, how are you? Or how's your week been? Or, or how's, your day, how's your day going, right? That's, we do that, right? We greet each other that way. Well, if we really wanted to know how we're doing, a more direct way to get down to the bottom of that question is to ask, hey, 
do you know that God loves you? And the reason that's more direct is because no matter what your week has been like, no matter what your day has been like, maybe you've had a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day, right? Maybe, maybe you've had one of those days that is like the worst day on paper that you could imagine. Look, it doesn't matter. It, it doesn't matter how bad your day has been. If you know that Jesus loves you, you're going to be okay. It's true. You're going to be okay. And so the question of how we're doing whether we're asking one another or whether we're asking ourselves, the answer to that question has to do with assurance. How deeply aware are you that God loves you? That's the question. How are you? How deeply aware are we that God is with us and that God is for us and that God loves us no matter what? That's the issue here, okay? That is the topic of assurance, that's what it's about. And so I wanna start by saying all of this because I want you to know that this topic is very important. This is assurance of salvation is a big deal in the Christian life and it is worth our thinking very carefully about, okay? So all that being said, we're pressing in more. What exactly is assurance? What is assurance of salvation? Well, the word for assurance is only used a few times in the New Testament, okay? But the concept of assurance shows up in a lot of places. For example, we find the word for assurance in Colossians 2, verse 2. Paul says that he struggled for the Colossian church, that their hearts may be encouraged, be knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. Do you hear the word in that? Full assurance? Assurance, the Greek word is pleroforia, right? It just means assurance, full conviction. And that's what shows up in Colossians 2.2. But most of the time we don't see the word, we see the concept like in Ephesians. In Ephesians chapter one, Paul prays for the church to have the eyes of their hearts enlightened. You guys know this verse. Paul prays in Ephesians one that the church would have the eyes of their hearts enlightened so that they might know their hope, know their hope, which is interesting. It's interesting. Paul doesn't pray that these Christians have hope. He prays that they know their hope. He wants them to know the hope to which they've been called. In Ephesians chapter three, Paul prays that God would strengthen the church with God's power in their inner being so that they would know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. See, Paul in these places, he's not praying for the Ephesian Christians to become Christians. He wants them to know what it means to be a Christian. Paul is praying for their assurance. He wants them to experience assurance of their salvation in Christ. Paul prayed for the church this way. He labored for the church this way because assurance of salvation is the deepest experience of faith in this world. It is. That's why the Puritan, Thomas Brooks, he wrote a book about assurance in 1654 and he titled the book, Heaven on Earth, A Treatise on Christian Assurance. 
In this book, uh, Thomas Brooks defines assurance as, quote, a gift not of having grace, but of knowing you have grace. He writes, it is one mercy for God to love the soul and another mercy for God to assure the soul of his love. That's basically what we see in Psalm 56, see. David doesn't just have God's grace, he knows that he has God's grace even despite his circumstances. That's what assurance is. Assurance is a robust degree of faith. That's what assurance is. But now let me explain what it's not. And this is for the sake of clarity. And for explaining what it's not, I'm going to lean on Thomas Brooks still. In his book on assurance, he gives us several points of application and qualifications, but two points of qualification I want to highlight is he tells us very clearly, get this, the experience of assurance is not required for salvation. This is, a, this is why this is a dicey topic, okay, because we, we can get it wrong. Hear me. The experience of assurance is not required for salvation. We are justified by faith alone, by, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. We examine this carefully in the book of Galatians. Our justification is not according to our works or our intellect or our ancestry or anything to do with us. Our salvation is all of Christ through faith alone. Amen? That's true. So then we have to ask, how does assurance factor in? Well, assurance doesn't get us salvation. Assurance knows that we have salvation. Brooks says, quote, Assurance is required for the well-being of a Christian, but not to the being of a Christian. Assurance is required for the well-being of a Christian, but not to the being of a Christian. It's required for the comfort of a Christian, but not to the salvation of a Christian. See, Brooks understands, as all the Puritans understood, that many Christians lack the experience of assurance in the Christian life. And that doesn't change the fact that they are indeed saved. And to make this point, which is so helpful, Thomas Brooks goes to Romans 8. And just so you know, I think Romans 8 is where we see the best example in the Bible of the assurance of salvation. We, we don't have time to get into it in detail here, but the very end of Romans 8 is basically the New Testament version of Psalm 56. Paul's quoting from Psalm 118, right? It's, this is the, it's the New Testament version. But it's in Romans 8.15. Romans 8.15, that's the place where Paul tells us that because of the Holy Spirit, because we've been adopted by God, we call God Abba Father, right? We call God that because that's who God is, right? Well, as an example, what Brooks does is he brings this down to the human level. Try it with me. He says this. He says, look. The fact that we know we have an earthly father is not what makes that person our father. Obvious, right? 
But, he says, knowing that we have a father, it does bring some comfort, right? And so Brooke says, the weakest saint, the smallest mustard seed, the most bruised reed, the weakest saint calls God Father because that's who God is. But it is still a special comfort to cry out to him, Abba, Father. That is assurance. Assurance is not required for salvation, but it's an experience of robust faith in the salvation we already have. And in that way, assurance becomes part of Christian maturity. Here's the second qualifier. The experience of assurance is not something that we can just make happen, but it's a special gift that the Holy Spirit gives. And this point, I think, is the reason why this topic of assurance is not talked about all that much today. At least we don't talk about it the way the Puritans talked about it. It's because if assurance is a special work that the Holy Spirit gives and some or many Christians don't have it, but others do, that doesn't seem fair to us. It's the same reason we don't talk much about heavenly rewards. Like, you know, there's going to be rewards in heaven one day, okay? There's going to be rewards in heaven, and the fact that some Christians in heaven will have more rewards than other Christians in heaven, that really disturbs our egalitarian instincts, right? We want it all to be, no, you need to get this. In heaven, there will be Christians, your brothers and sisters, who will have more rewards than you and me, and that's okay. Just like right now in, in this life, there are some Christians today who have more assurance than you and me. And that's okay too. In fact, it's more than okay because in heaven, when we see others having more rewards than us, we're going to love it. Not just okay with it, we're going to rejoice in it. The abounding blessings of our brothers and sisters, even more than us, is going to make us so happy. And we can start to practice that right now when it comes to our brothers and sisters who have greater measures of faith than we do. The late J.L. Packer said, assurance is more than any bare human inference. It is a God-given conviction of one standing in grace, stamped on the mind and heart by the Spirit. And God-given and by the Spirit are the key words in that sentence. We don't make assurance happen. There's no switch that we can flip. We don't, you know, grit our teeth and clench our fist in order to find it. The Holy Spirit gives assurance as He pleases, and therefore we should not be angry or bitter when we don't have it. There's a way to read Psalm 56. And to read David's words in verse 9, this I know that God is for me. And we can neither say it with David 
nor be happy for David that he can say it, but instead we can feel frustrated that our experience is not like his. Just being honest here, right? There's a distance and we can feel frustrated by it. Maybe it's subtle. Maybe you read Psalm 56 verses 9 to 11. You read this, you know, this I know that God is for me. Maybe you read that and there's a little like um, meh in your heart. Just like that. Or maybe it's a, um, it's, you read it and there's a ugh in your heart. Whatever the expressions might be. Right? You read it and you just, you know. Because David is doing something here that you, you want for your life. You want to be able to say that with David, but you can't. You can't, not the way David does. And look, if we're honest in here, that's pretty much all of us in this room, right? That's pretty much all of us here. And I want you to know, if if we lack the kind of assurance that we find here in Psalm 56, it's okay. It's okay. Because the facts are, Christian, you are loved by God. He is with you. He is for you. And if you lack assurance of that, don't be frustrated, but humbly ask God for it. You can pray the way that Paul prayed, that pray, ask God, that the eyes of our souls be strengthened to see deeper into the truths of the gospel. Pray for that and then pursue it. And that comes to the the third thing here in closing. I want to suggest one means through which we might experience more assurance in our lives. Because I, I do pray this for us. I long for us, City's Church, to be able to say what David says here in Psalm 56. I want us to have this assurance. This I know that God is for me. I want us to say what Paul says in Romans 8:31. God is for me. Who can be against me? Nobody. Right? That's what Paul says. I pray that God, by the power of his spirit, give us that kind of faith no matter the circumstances. And as I pray, as we pray that God do this, we also want to put ourselves on the pathways where God tends to answer such prayers. Again, Thomas Brooks, in typical Puritan fashion, spends a ton of time on application. And he says that although only the Holy Spirit gives assurance, there are ways and means that we can practice in pursuit of it. And he mentions several different reasons. I'm only going to mention one or two. One. One and a half. As it turns out, what I'm about to say, this is like the third week in a row that we're saying this, okay? So I'm not sure who this is for, but it's for somebody, all right? Three weeks in a row saying the same thing. One of the key means through which God gives assurance is by our preaching the gospel to ourselves. Or to be more specific, In Brooks' words, we see to it that our hearts run to Christ. We don't pursue assurance as a thing in itself, but we pursue Jesus. And we pursue Jesus by reminding ourselves of who he is and what he's done. We open this book and we behold him. For every one look at ourselves, we take ten looks at Christ. We get to know him in his book. This is the way Thomas Brooks explains it. One more time from Brooks. He says... A person loves Christ by knowing and knows Christ by loving. 
He cannot love much that knows little. He cannot love little that knows much. And as a person rises higher and higher in his apprehension of Christ, so he cannot but rise higher and higher in his affections for Christ. Again, the daily mercies and experiences that they have of the love of Christ, of the care of Christ, of the kindnesses and compassions of Christ working more and more towards them, they cannot but raise their affections more and more for him as fire is increased by adding fuel to it, so is our love to Christ upon fresh and new manifestations of his great love toward us. Wow. Do you hear what he's saying? Our knowing Jesus and our loving Jesus go together and we get both by daily remembering Jesus' great love for us. And one of the ways that we do this, one of the ways we preach to ourselves is by memorizing scripture. Pastor Kenny talked last week about this. Take note cards, write verses on them, post them up wherever you can. Take it with you, put them in your pocket. Maybe it's not exact quotations of verses. Maybe it's just simple reminders, simple truths from the Bible. I have a friend who shared with me her strategy for this, and she calls it pocket preaching, okay? And what she does, she takes a note card to stick in her pocket, but before she puts it in her pocket, she writes a truth from Scripture on the note card, and she writes it to herself as if Jesus was saying it to her. Tracking with that? So on one note card she has, which is a little bit crinkled up because it's been in her pocket, on this one note card, it says from Revelation 22, it has first her name and then, you will see my face and my name will be written on your forehead. Could you imagine, imagine Jesus saying that to you? Like whatever it is you're up against, whatever you got going on, whatever you're up against, imagine like John tells us in Revelation 22:4. imagine Jesus saying to you, your name, and then Jesus says, your name, and you will see my face, and my name will be written on your forehead. Have a nice day. <laughs> right? Right? Imagine that. This is preaching the gospel to ourselves. This is our hearts running to Christ. It's remembering who he is, remembering what he's done, and it's a key means through which we experience assurance. And the last, the other key means is what we do each week when we come to this table. Okay. When we come to the Lord's table, as we do right now, we are coming from all kinds of different places, okay? Hear this, you're in here, we're in here. Feeble faith and strong faith, tested faith and new faith, tired faith and refreshed faith. We come from all kinds of different places, but we come to this table together, not on the basis of our faith's quality, but on the fact of our faith's object, which is Jesus Christ. 
crucified for us, dead and buried for us, and then raised on the third day for us. We come because of Jesus. The, the bread we take here is the true bread of Jesus, the same true bread for all of us. The cup that we drink is the blood of Jesus, the same true blood for all of us. And we come here together to receive him, receive him. We all receive him. And so if you do receive him this morning, if you would give Jesus thanks this morning for his great salvation, if you've trusted in Jesus Christ, I invite you to eat and to drink with us. We'll come serve the bread now. Just hold it and I'll come back up and we'll eat it all together. His body is the true bread. Let us serve you.